Good morning. We are in Luke chapter 7 today, um, and we'll actually probably go through, uh, it won't be on your screen, but I'll probably go through the first three verses of chapter 8, because it does, it does tell us something about what's happening in Jesus' ministry. Um, for those of you who are guests, or those of you joining us and you haven't joined us for a while uh, online or on the phone, uh, we, every year between Epiphany and Easter, we as a church walk through one of the four Gospels. Um, if Easter is the, the pinnacle of what it means to be Christian because of what Jesus did and his ability to rise from the dead and take the sting out of death for us, seems, seems appropriate for us to be so familiar with the gospel stories, the story of who Jesus was, what he did, uh, what he taught, how he suffered, who he healed, all of that. It seems appropriate, if not crucial, for us to be very familiar with those with the life and the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus. So we are walking through uh, the gospel according to Luke, and because there's not quite enough, um, sorry, I'm trying to find my phone to get it out of my pocket, uh, because there's not quite enough, there aren't quite enough weeks between Epiphany and Easter to go chapter by chapter, some, some weeks uh, we will be, the, the preacher will be given an option of, you know, like next week will be Luke 8 and 9. Uh, we probably, there's not even enough time probably to read those aloud, much less uh, speak to them, um, each, you know, two full chapters. But I do encourage you, we encourage you to fo- not just follow along, read ahead. Um, if you know next week we're going to be in Luke chapters 8 and 9, uh, maybe this week read and pray over and ask the Lord to speak to you in the chapters 8 and 9 of the gospel according to Luke. With that said, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to, I'll paraphrase the, the parts of the chapter that we're not, that we're not reading today, <clears throat> and, then, uh, and then we'll read and speak about what God, what Jesus as God in flesh, what he does with a particular woman who came in, uh, didn't really interrupt, but came in and did something to Jesus that Jesus greatly, greatly appreciated and had a teaching moment from it. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. And yes, Lord, we even thank you for the snow because it reminds us, reminds us that, that even though it's winter, spring will come. Reminds us that even though you went into the tomb, you rose again. It reminds us over and over and over again that you can show your beauty of the beauty of your creation in so, so many different ways. So, Lord, as we, as we read through your scripture, as we talk about what you said to this woman and to a Pharisee, we pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have us hear and see. And more than that, Lord, that you give us hearts to receive it. If there's a change you want to make in us, Lord, with mercy and conviction, do so. And if there's not, and we just have this opportunity to celebrate the fact that you give us your written word to know who you are, then help us to celebrate it well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the seventh chapter of Luke is, all of Luke is about faith. I'm not trying to take away from that at all, but but there's these unusual um, interactions that Jesus has with people. And I want to tell you one thing. You've heard this from me before. Um, but it would be recommended as a, from a preacher to say to the people, imitate Jesus in every circumstance. 
except one. Don't do what he does at funerals because he interrupts everyone he goes to, which is glorious. And one of those is here, the raising, raising of the widow's son in Nain. But just before that, we see Jesus is walking down the road and, and a centurion, someone who is in charge of 100 Roman soldiers, comes up. And I, I paraphrase, but he says, look, I've got a sick servant um, and Jesus, take me to him. And, no, no, no. I understand what it means to be in authority. If you say from here that he will be healed, then it will be done. And Jesus commends him for his faith. This is a centurion. This is one of the occupiers. This is one of the, those who, they, don't, they didn't enslave, but those who, who did not give the Jewish people the right to rule themselves. And then in Nain, he walks up to a woman, he sees a funeral procession, and he walks up to a woman who is, her oldest son has died, her only son has died. So she's already a widow, and in that, in that culture, um, women didn't have the property rights that men had. And so if you lost your husband, and you, but you had a son, the son inherited the husband's uh, wealth, and then he would tend to or take care of mom. But if a, if a woman is a widow and then loses her only son, she's now at the mercy of whoever might show her kindness and nothing more. So she doesn't inherit the wealth. She doesn't get to keep it. It's not hers. And Jesus walks up and sees this funeral and walks up to the woman. This is why I say, do not, do not imitate the Lord at funerals. And he says to her, don't cry. What else should she be doing? But he's able to say, don't cry, because he knows what's going to happen next. And he tells this young man who's dead, get up, arise. And he does. Shortly thereafter, Jesus is, is, is confronted, really, by disciples of John the baptizer. And John had called them together. He was in prison. He called them together and said, I want you to send word to Jesus. Are you the one that we're waiting for, or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus there's a little doubt showing up in John because John, Jesus wasn't becoming everything that John had expected. John's in prison for quite a long time. And Jesus goes through this, this litany of, you know, the, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. But he leaves out and he's quoting a passage from the Old Testament, but he leaves something out. The prisoners are set free. He doesn't say that. So he's saying to John, John, you got to have faith. You got to hang in there. I am who you thought I was, but you're not getting out of prison. And then we get to this circumstance, this, this situation, this, I, I want to say, I want to call it a story, but if you call it a story, sometimes people think that you don't believe that it's true. It is true. It did happen. But Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to come have dinner at his house. And that wasn't all that unusual. The roving preachers, the roving rabbis, the, 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 the Pharisees want to hear what someone's doing, and they want to know by whose authority are you saying these things, because almost every rabbi was trained by another rabbi who was trained by another rabbi, and so you had different schools of thought, much like we do in Christianity. We have Baptist seminaries. We have Reformed seminaries. We have Episcopalian seminaries. We have Catholic seminaries. We have Wesleyan seminaries. We have, we, there's lots of different takes on similar things. And so this Pharisee wants to get, he, want, he, he, he wants to get to know Jesus, and he wants to test him a bit. And this is the story. It says, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined 
at the table. By the way, if you want to, if you like the little nuanced things, he, him reclining at the table will explain to you how this woman could be behind him at his feet. Because he's laying down, they usually laid down with their, like on an, on an elbow, they kind of recline with their head toward the table and their feet facing away. That gave room for more people to be around the table. So one of the first, so he's at his house, reclined at his table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at, a Pharisee's house, at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, just a couple of little things here. It might be kind of unusual uh, to think that, like, if, if I had you over to my home for, Sunday, for a Sunday meal, um, and then some sinner from the area just happened to walk in. Now, that in our culture, it's kind of, it's, it's rude, right? You, you, at least you knock on the door. You don't just show up. But back then, especially if someone was pretty well known in an area, in a, if you were at a Pharisee's home, anyone's home, the hospi hospitable thing to do, especially if it's a teacher, to leave the front door open. If you think back, when Jesus healed the young man who was paralyzed, um, he was in someone's home and there were so many, such a crowd around him that, he, that they couldn't get their friend in. So they climbed up on the roof and tore through and dropped him down. Same kind of circumstance here. Yes, the Pharisees uh, feed Jesus and likely his disciples, but the door is open so that those around can participate or at least overhear. So this woman who, who, who had lived a sinful life in that town, think about the woman at the well in John chapter 5. She shows up in the middle of the day to the well um, because she wasn't, she didn't want to be in part because she didn't want to be around the other women. You always go at the break of day to get water because it's not hot. It's just how you start your day. You're going to need water for cooking. You're going to need water for cleansing. You're going to need water for all kinds of things. So the women as a group would typically head off to the well in the morning together. Safety. The woman at the well the woman at the well in Samaria, she showed up alone in the middle of the day, and Jesus had a divine appointment with her. Beautiful, beautiful story. But when you're in a town like that, and you're not living the way the town would have you live, everybody knows it. Who here used to watch the Andy Griffith show? Okay. You remember Otis? What was Otis known for? Town drunk, right? Everybody knew it. Small town, maybe one stoplight. You got Deputy Sheriff Barney Fife, you know. Um, and he was always after Otis. But then, you know, they treated Otis with kindness when he was in jail. Aunt B would make him some food and bring it, and, and he'd get out every morning and go do his thing again. Just think small, small, small town. This is a sinful woman who lived a sinful life in that town. Everybody knows it. And she shows up. She's behind Jesus' feet as he's reclining. She begins to wet his feet with her tears, and she had brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, most likely it was myrrh or nard. And I'm going to tell you, to have the amount that she had in order to cover over his feet and wash them, it probably cost about 300 denarii, which is a year's wage. So it is likely the only thing of value this woman owned. And if she did have it, it probably was passed down to her father as something, it's part of her dowry to give to the person, the family of the person that she's going to marry. 
But she sees it as it's the only valuable thing she has. And she hears that Jesus is in town and she's going to see him. She's not carrying around an alabaster jar of nard. She had to go to where she hid it or kept it and get it and come. So she comes with intention. She comes on purpose. She wants to be at the feet of Jesus, to hear what he has to say and to know who he is. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this woman crying on his feet and and pouring perfume on him. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now we've given you that clue before, whenever Jesus knows what they're thinking, there's some significant teaching coming. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him. He didn't say it out loud, but Jesus knows. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. That's about 20 months wages. And the other 50. That's about two months wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon, that's the name of the Pharisee, said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which is a common greeting, but this woman from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Phenomenal story. And one that most of us are familiar with. And because of our familiarity, sometimes we can miss some of the things that are going on. So I'm going to just do a little compare contrast here. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee who's there to kind of hear from him and to find out whose authority he speaks, where he, what he's teaching from, what his training was, that kind of thing. It was probably innocent, but there may be something else going on. There may be something going on beneath the surface. This is a small town. This Pharisee has probably heard word, but he probably doesn't know what the Pharisees from Jerusalem are thinking or the Sadducees or some of the other confrontations. So he leaves the door open so that everyone around can, can participate. And this sinful woman walks in and we don't know what she has done. We can make some assumptions, but that is irrelevant. She was a woman who was known to be someone of ill repute in the town. And she hears that he's coming, finds out when he's entered the town, goes home, grabs this alabaster jar with, with a year's worth of wages in perfume in it, finds her way to the feet of Jesus and begins to weep, wipe his feet with her hair, put perfume on his feet, and kiss his feet. That's an unusual occurrence. I don't know how often that happens in your home. It does not happen in mine. I don't even think we have any kind of perfume in my house. 
But the guy who invited Jesus sees it and he goes, he should know. Not just that he should know better, but he should know who this woman is. He should know. If he's a prophet, if he has wisdom from God, he should know how sinful she is. He should know that he should not be touched by this woman because it would make him ceremonially unclean. And Jesus tells him to look at her and then says, you didn't do this. And by the way, none of those things, the oil, the feet, the, that stuff, none of that was required of a Pharisee for, for you know, an open, open invitation. He, he didn't have to provide those things to Jesus. But Jesus is just showing the contrast. You didn't give me water for my feet. She washed my feet with, tear, with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss, but she's kissing my feet. And then he gives that illustration. Who, who will love the forgiver more? The one who had been forgiven much or the one who had been forgiven little? By the way, two months' wages is not little, but 20 months' wages is much bigger. I want you to just, for a second, please, figure out what the Pharisee is seeing, not in Jesus, but in the woman. He's seeing who she was. And Jesus sees her for who she is and who she's going to become. Because she showed up with the intention of pouring perfume on Jesus. So her repentance her, her I'm, 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 I got to change something, has already taken place. She came to him. She didn't wait for him to come to her. Jesus came also to the Pharisee. He came to the Pharisee. The Pharisee invited him, but Jesus came to the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is still questioning Jesus. This woman comes to Jesus and only adores him, gives him everything that she has, a year's worth of wages in perfume, yeah, there's other accounts of this story where people are like, well, man, we could, have, we could have sold that and fed the poor. But she just wants to adore Jesus. Why? Because she realizes that she's not the person God wants her to be. And the Pharisee only sees that. And Jesus forgave her and told her that her faith made her well. Faith made her clean. The, her faith, so-so is the word, saved her. That's deliverance, that's salvation, that's healing, all wrapped into one word. But the Pharisee, he saw her for who she was. He's always looking in the rearview mirror. And I have a friend, his name was Terry, my former church, who before he was 17 years old had four, either four or six, I don't remember the, the specifics because some of them were misdemeanors, some of them he wasn't charged for, but he had committed them, but felonies before he was 17 years old. Now, when he, when, when, when he, when he turned into uh, an adult and, um, and he turned his life around, those things were sealed so they couldn't be held against him for job hunting and that kind of thing, but he had this phenomenal testimony and he wanted to, we were asking people to give their testimony at church. And he wanted to give his. And it's a, it's a great testimony. He owned his stuff. He fell in love with Jesus. And he became a husband and a father and a businessman. It was just a great story. But his wife wouldn't let him give his testimony. Because she'd grown up in West Michigan. 
And she was afraid that if he spoke his story, that people would not see her husband any longer for who he is, but only for who he was. That is not an accusation, but there's some Pharisee in all of us. And again, a reminder that in the gospel according to Luke, the Pharisees aren't just portrayed the way they're portrayed so that we have someone to hate, but as a reminder to us that we have a tendency always, all human beings do, we have a tendency to become legalistic, judgmental, and kind of harsh. But this woman who gets great acclaim from Jesus, who is forgiven of her sins, so the old is gone, the new has come, the God of the universe no longer sees her for who she was, but for who she is in Christ. And for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven cost him his life. But what does she do when she comes to Jesus? She gives him everything. And if you want to know some, uh, just a couple of other nuggets of people, they, these happen to be women, but people who Jesus touched and what their lives became. Let me just read three more verses for you. This is right at the beginning of chapter 8. It kind of goes with this, with this part. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had, been, had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Acusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Some of these women still married, but they're following Jesus around and using the influence of their uh, ones in, in, in Herod's court, the influence of their husband's position and their financial resources to support the ministry of Jesus. They have, uh, they have an encounter with Jesus and everything changes, everything. They leave what they know to follow him. They give up what's theirs to support him and everything in their lives is different. Why? They've been forgiven much, and so they love much. So I'm going to tell you one more story and give you one more illustration. It's one you've heard before. It's from a book called The Cure. And I'm going to tell you about a conversation I had with someone who's very dear to me soon after they read this book. The author of The Cure describes our sin as a rotting pile of cat food and mayonnaise. Just this big, nasty. And he talks about Jesus standing, if it, you know, how do we view our sin and how do we view Jesus' view of our sin? And he describes it as me standing over here and that stinking, rotting pile of cat, cat food and mayonnaise is in the middle, just this huge heap. And Jesus on the other side, like that. But that's not what Jesus does if you look at the Gospels. He's actually standing next to you with his arm around you looking at the stinking pile of rotting mayonnaise and catfish, or cat food, I always say catfish, and says, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll take care of it. We're going to work together to make sure you don't go back in that, but I'm going to just take that away. And so I'm, uh, uh, someone who's very dear to me read that book and in, internally said this to themselves, what pile? What pile? I'm a pretty good person. 
How are you in that? Do you recognize how much you've been forgiven? Do you realize how much you need Christ? Do you realize that he came to save the sinners and we're it? He didn't come to save the righteous because we're not that. The Pharisees weren't. This woman wasn't. The paralytic wasn't. The, the, the man at the pool, the Samaritan, none of them were good enough to be accepted and received by the God of the universe. But one of the issues sometimes is that we don't think that he had that much to save us from. We think, we, you know what, we kind of deserve it. But the scripture says we don't. And so, do you love him much or do you love him little? The likelihood is that measure is how you see who you were. Now, he's not asking us to live in regret. He's not asking us to, 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 to look back and just keep beating ourselves down for that stinking, rotting pile of mayonnaise and cat food, our sin. But he does want us to recognize it, that he had to save us from it or else we're doomed. Remember when Paul says, I am... I'm I'm the greatest of all sinners. And he kind of was. Because in righteousness, in his belief that he was being righteous, he slaughtered Christians. And then has an encounter with Jesus, and he went right back to what he was doing. No. Everything changed. Watch in the Gospel of Luke. When someone has a connection with Jesus, when someone has a moment with Jesus, when someone comes to Jesus, something changes. Now, sometimes it doesn't change And Jesus lets him walk away. Remember the rich young man? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Follow me. Ah, I'm out. You've been forgiven much. So do you love much? Has everything changed because you've encountered Jesus? If so, thank him. If not, confess it. Repent of it. Ask God to forgive you for it. And then do your best to be grateful for what he's done in your life, for you, and through you. He knows better than you do who you were, and he chooses not to hold it against you. Is that not worth love in return. Much or little? I can't answer that for you. I know there's some areas in my life where it's more little than much, and that needs to be confessed and repented of so that I can love him all the more because of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he promised he will do in me, through me, and for me. Let's pray. Lord, you're God. You're God. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you would record your written word, you reveal yourself to us so that we would have hope? But you are mindful of us. You do care about us. And you do forgive much. You could have come angry and in wrath, but instead you came seeking to forgive 
because you know that when we're forgiven, everything changes. It costs you your life to do it, but Lord, we're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.